Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the last Waterstone Lecture for uh, 2017. Welcome. We're glad you're here. And uh, the lecture series is designed to equip Christians to engage culture. And there's no more important way to engage culture, engage life, than prayer. And tonight we're honored to have Rich and Dana Polly with us. Just a few things about them. First, their experience uh, vocationally is they're both uh, in the marketing field, marketing directors. Uh, Dana is with Lean In Cards. Lean and Tree. Lean and Tree Cards and Boulder. Uh -huh. And uh, Rich has been with um, uh, McGraw-Hill Publishers, Group Publishing, David C. Cook, a number of different areas. Um, and then there was one on the East Coast you were telling me about. Uh, Martindale Hubble, which is Martin. the, uh, M. Berkeley. Uh-huh, UC Berkeley. And he survived that, UC Berkeley. Yeah. So, um, Rich and Dana have been here at Waterstone. We were trying to think about nine years. And one thing I would say about their journey with Waterstone is that over the years, they have spent some really special, even sacred times with our staff. They have kind of been at times the chaplain to our staff, and uh, both uh, corporately and individually, uh, several of us spend time with Rich and Dana, especially when we need a boost. Um, we wanted to share with Rich and Dana's permission just a little bit about them as a couple. Uh, in 1999, uh, five weeks after they were married, they were on their first outing as a married couple, uh, riding bikes, and Rich went over the handlebars. It landed on his face and has since that time, in 1999, been uh, paralyzed from the chest down. And so they have uh, truly walked their marriage vows and walked an amazing journey together. So, without further delay, would you join me in welcoming Rich and Dana Polly to our show lecture series? Thank you, Mary. Well, we're happy to be here tonight. Um, the slides, there's some white and yellow type that didn't realize it wasn't going to show super well in this bright light. So, if you want to move a little bit closer, those of you real far back, you'll probably read the small print a little better. So, I'll, I'll leave it up to you, but you could see a little better. We'll try to talk loud enough. Um, as we were preparing for tonight's lecture over the past several weeks, we realized that we put together probably a 17 part series <laughs> on prayer. And uh, clearly, we can't touch on everything that the Bible has to say about prayer in one session. So we probably won't touch even maybe on your favorite verse on prayer, but we hope we get the highlights. So consider this a highlight reel of all that we've put together. And we're going to move this reel at a pretty fast pace. Um, so buckle your seat belts, and, and we'll get going. Rich? All right. Um, there is, and again, I too joined Dana in saying, what a delight it is to be here with you tonight. Prayer is a passion for us because we've seen it transform our lives. And what we're going to be sharing with you tonight are ways in which, in which it has transformed us. We're not prayer czars. We're not prayer anything. We just join you in, a, in the wonderful delight of understanding how prayer can transform life. In Revelation 4, verses 9 to 11, there's this remarkable verse that I think perhaps most succinctly describes what prayer is. And everything that we say tonight will be to enhance this definition of prayer. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks. Well, let's stop right there. 
because that is the definition of prayer, giving God glory, honor, and thanks. To him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, O Lord and God, to receive glory, honor, and power. For you create all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Tonight we're going to look at prayer from three different directions. Perhaps we could call them three vignettes of prayer. The first one is a better way to pray. Um, the second one, and Dana will be uh, discussing this one, and it's going to be loaded with scriptures, and she's going to be roaring through this. So if you don't write down everything or capture everything that you would like to, uh, Larry has prepared some handouts for you, so don't worry uh, if you don't get the scriptures. And the third one is called Turf Wars. The third vignette will be called Turf Wars. On the surface, that makes no sense, but just hang in there, and we hope, <laughs> we hope that something comes of it because it's a powerful look, I think, at culture and prayer. Our goal tonight is to journey together, and together is the key word. Because we learn together, we've, uh, Dana and I, for example, have been just digging deeply into the topic of prayer, and we just want to share that journey with you tonight. So tonight we're going to journey together to a number of destinations as we discover prayer in some new dimensions. Now, when you take a trip and you review it at the very end, you say, some of these destinations I really enjoyed and others maybe I could have done without. That may very well be the reaction you have to some of the destinations that we encountered tonight. And so the key is to find the destinations that really excite you about prayer and the rest of them, save them for somebody else. Don't worry about it, it's okay. If at times something we say is troubling, that too is okay. Because powerful prayer demands that we pray outside our comfort zone. Well, let's talk about prayer and a better way to pray. Jesus first talked about what prayer is not. Prayer is not a religious calisthenic. It's not about getting something from God. It's not about our worthiness, and it certainly is not a religious ritual. It's fair to say, okay, Rich, if it's none of those, then what is it? Well, Dana will discuss what prayer is in some depth in paradigms, and I don't want to steal her thunder. But as we begin, I want to identify the overriding, all-encompassing truth that is the basis for everything we talk about tonight. At its core, prayer is about communion and communication with the Father. Perhaps the easiest way to explain it is found in John 3.16. <laughs> and I think most of you would say, that is a strange verse to look at and say, this is how the Father wants to communicate with us. But let's take a look at John 3.16 for just a second. For God uh, so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. I would imagine if on Sunday you walked into Waterstone and just pulled 30 people out of their chairs and said, 
What is eternal life? The answers would likely be very similar. We think of it as the future, someday and somewhere in heaven. But you know, that so restricts the definition of eternal. We know about the eternal future, but Christ wants to have relationship with us in the eternal now. And in the eternal now, what does that look like? Let's drop down a few chapters to John 17, 3. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Um, know means to understand, to perceive. It's the Jewish idiom for the most intimate of relationships between a husband and a wife. It's the same word as in the Old Testament. Adam knew his wife Eve. And that in the eternal now is what God wants to experience with us. It's what God seeks now for us to be in his presence and in prayer. A better way to pray is what uh, this first section is about. And we're going to look at the old way, which is intercessory pleading, P-L-E-A-D-I-N-G, and the new way, which is intercessory praise. Now, here's one of our first destinations. And it may be a comfortable destination, and it may leave you a little uneasy. But just hang in there with me, and I think we'll be okay. As New Testament believers, we frequently pray Old Testament prayers. And you say, well, what's the matter with that? It's a prayer. It's a prayer out of the Old Testament. And that would be fine if the God we worship was the God of the Old Covenant. But as much as there's a huge distinction between law and grace, there's also a significant distinction between prayer under the law and prayer in grace. To understand what that's like, we're going to eavesdrop for a minute and hear what some of these Old Testament prayers sounded like. Not all of them, but many of them. These prayers could easily be characterized as intercessory pleading, frequently crying out to God, who was perceived as being full of wrath and anger, begging for his mercy and deliverance, pouring out their hearts to God in raw emotion. Let's listen to what a few of these prayers sounded like. Daniel 6, then these men assembled and found Daniel praying and making supplication before God. It's the lion's den story in essence. But Daniel was praying and making supplication. Well, we know what praying is, but what is supplication? Supplication comes from the Aramaic word shanan, which means to implore favor. To implore favor. And implore means to beg someone earnestly or desperately to do something. Then the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord saying, we have sinned against you. For indeed we have forsaken our God and served the Baals. Judges 10.10. God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and with Jacob. Exodus 2.24. A voice was heard on the desolate heights weeping and supplications again, supplications of the children of Israel. Pleading, pleading, the sound of Israel crying out to God for deliverance from Egypt, 
from the wilderness. And as they got closer to the promised land, and even in the promised land, fearful that God would allow them to be destroyed at the hand of the pagan giants, they would again cry out in fear. And then there was the plaintive cry to God from Babylon three, perhaps four times in captivity. God, allow us to return. Yahweh, allow us to return to our homes and to our families. David praised God, and there are any number of wonderful prayers in Psalms that I would characterize as New Testament prayers that you would hear in the age of grace. David would pray to God and thank him and praise him for his goodness and love. But even he cried out at times in prayers uncertain whether God could really come to his rescue, as you tie some of these prayers in the Psalms with those occasions when Saul was chasing him, when his son Absalom was chasing him. You can just imagine what that must have been like out in the middle of the wilderness with the enemy's fires soaring to the sky, taunting David and his small band, or hearing the sound of the enemy soldiers laughing and joking, preparing for the kill, which likely would come the next day. But even at that moment, David managed at times when he wasn't full of fear to praise God. Now, I don't want to give the wrong impression uh, because these prayers were not wrong. They were not wrong prayers. In fact, they were the construct for prayer under the law. And even these prayers were designed to demonstrate that man could not meet the demands of a righteous God. And then, in one glorious moment, the paradigm of prayer changed. At the cross where God moved from fear to Father, where God poured out his wrath not upon his creation, but upon his Son. In the Old Testament, man was the mediator, begging for mercy from a distant God, sequestered high somewhere in the sky. At the cross, Jesus became the mediator between God the Father and man. Romans 5.9 tells us, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. And then there is this remarkable passage. And if you ever have the time to just take a week and meditate and reflect upon it, it would transform your life. John 15, 15. No longer do I call you servants. Awesome. Awesome. For a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. And then the last expression in that verse, and I don't know exactly what it means. For all things that I've heard from my Father, I have made known to you. But it certainly suggests that we have access to his will. We know what his will is because he has shared it with us. In the New Testament, Christ is now our mediator. We pray to the Father who loves us deeply and who has called us no longer to servant but friends. We pray to a Father who already in grace at the cross has provided for our every need. And so we no longer, as in the Old Testament, need to beg. Prayer is now conversation. Prayer is about worship, making the main thing the main thing. You say to me, well, Rich, um, does that mean that there isn't intercession in the um, New Testament then? 
in, among the different models of prayer that we have? And I would say, yes, there is intercession in the New Testament, but it's shaped differently. Now it's couched in praise. Let me give you an example of the difference. Some years ago in a small Texas town, the pastor of a very small church prayed for the salvation of his town. And he said to God in most earnest fashion, if you cared for the town as much as I do, there would be revival. He instantly realized the foolishness of his prayer that God incrementally loved that town far greater than he could ever imagine. And so instead he began to thank God for his deep love and the redemptive plan he had in place for the town. We still offer up requests. You say, well, if it's all about praise, aren't we supposed to still ask? Don't we still have needs? And I would say, yes, of course. We still offer requests. But now we do so in thanksgiving and gratitude for what God has already provided. Briefly, let's summarize what intercessory prayer looks like. We still offer requests, but with an attitude of praise and gratitude for what God has already provided. My God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. We now pray prayers packed with God's word, the multitude of provisions and promises found in his word. I'm going to close this first vignette by sharing with you a model of intercessory praise for salvation. Now, you can't use this model because it's mine. You're going to have to come up with your own. That's your problem. And so you're going to have to deal with it. <laughs> Let's say you have a friend named Danny. Danny needs salvation. He's a wonderful guy. And if good guys made it into heaven, he'd be at the front of the line. So you go to the church and you say, I'd like for you to join me in prayer. And so many times uh, throughout the years in churches, I've heard this particular prayer. Prayers of the believer and of the church that sound like this. Oh God, Danny is a good man and he needs your salvation. If it be your will, please bring him to salvation. Well, the first problem with that prayer is that we know God's will. We don't have to ask him if it's his will that Danny be saved. That was the essential point of the cross. It is his will that none should perish. So you say to me, Rich, okay, if you don't like that prayer, come up with a better one. Well, I don't know that this is better, but this is what intercessory praise might sound like for salvation for Danny. I thank you, God, for the cross and for the partnership we enjoy in seeing Danny's heart become receptive. I thank you, Father, for the folks you have brought into Danny's life from Sunday school teachers and VBS workers to new and unexpected believers who will share the goodness of God's grace with Danny. And I thank you, God, not only for Danny's salvation, but for the remarkable impact Danny's salvation will have in his world. The next vignette we want to take a look at is paradigms. And as we suggested earlier, um, Dana's going to fly through a lot of these. You're going to find a lot of scriptures on the board. And if you want to just listen, it's okay, because we do have the handouts. So Dana, it's your time. 
Martin Luther said, to be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. And prayer is the lifeblood of our relationship with God, and I think we'd all agree it's the most important relationship in our lives. And it is a two-way street. So let's dive further into what the Bible tells us about prayer and what tonight we'll call paradigms. First of all, within the context of the purpose of prayer, we'll look at what God receives in prayer. It's not just about us. It's about him. What we obtain through prayer is obviously near and dear to our hearts. Um, we'll look at some specific insights on prayer that the Bible provides. The relationship between faith and prayer, they go hand in hand. Some hindrances to prayer. What gets in the way? And talk a little bit about delay versus denial, because we all struggle with which is it. So the purpose of prayer, God's benefit, number one, from our prayer, God receives the worship, the fellowship and communion with us, his creation that he made for himself. It's primarily, prayer is, as we've talked earlier, Rich has mentioned, it's about relationship. And in fact, when we um, think about that, talk about that a little more in a minute um, but the second thing that God gets from prayer that is very clear as elaborated in the Lord's Prayer is his kingdom comes and his will is done on earth as it is in heaven it's interesting that God has made us a partner in executing his will on earth he's made us in fact agents of his kingdom we are the kingdom enforcers we're the ones who proclaim the kingdom of God and take a stand against the kingdom of darkness. And when Rich will elaborate this further in a little bit when we discuss how to extend the kingdom of God into our world and culture. Jesus specifically told the 12, the 70, and then all future disciples to preach the kingdom of heaven and heal the sick. And that's in Matthew 10, it's in Luke 9 and, and Luke 10, where, where those two are sandwiched together, and we're marching orders. We, as we have looked at the Lord's Prayer, we're to pray His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And if you really think about that, you have to consider then, what are the conditions of heaven that predicate the dimensions of His will that we're to be pray, that we're to pray also be done on earth? So a question, is sickness, disease, poverty, lack, strife, pain, social injustice at all found in heaven? I'll leave you to ponder that implication for how we're to pray about his will on earth. Benefit to us, well we too reap the benefit of fellowship and communion with our Father God. Psalm 1611 says, in his presence is fullness of joy and in his right hand are pleasures forever. The verse again, my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Our needs are met in Christ. In the Old Testament they didn't have their needs met in Christ in that old way to pray. In the, in the new dispensation we find our needs met in Christ. We don't always know how to pray as we ought, we're told in Romans 8. So we have the benefit of the Holy Spirit's assistance and intercession on our behalf according to God's will as he prays for us with moanings and groanings too deep for words. 
Romans 8.26 tells us. From prayer, we get peace. Peace that surpasses all understanding. We're told in Philippians 4, 6, and 7 to be anxious about nothing, but through prayer and supplication and thanksgiving, to let our requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guards our hearts and minds, again, in Christ Jesus. We obtain wisdom, we're told, in James 1 through 5, as we ask of God for it. So some more biblical insights on prayer. The New Testament models for prayer that we have, a few of them pulled out. Of course, first and foremost, the Lord's Prayer. And it's worth thinking about those elements. We've already talked about his kingdom come, his will be done. But he also used that as a model to say daily bread, deliverance from evil, deliverance from temptation. Clearly, those are the things that Jesus showed us were appropriate to petition the Father for. We have the benefit of Paul's prayers elaborated for us in Ephesians and Philippians. In Ephesians 1, we're told prayer for wisdom and revelation. In Ephesians 3, 14 to 21, we see a prayer prayed for the full knowledge of what we have in Christ. In Philippians 1, 9 to 11, we see a prayer for abundance of love, knowledge, and discernment. And in Colossians 1, 9 to 12, a prayer is spelled out for knowledge, wisdom, spiritual strength, and understanding. And notice that these aren't so much prayers for things, but more prayers for understanding of wisdom and revelation and discernment for what we already have. The assumption is we are already blessed and our needs are already supplied. And Paul is saying, you need to lay hold of that. We are instructed specifically in John 14 and 16 to pray to the Father in the name of Jesus. In 1 John 5:14, to pray with confidence. We're told if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us, and if he hears us, we have that which we ask. So it's an attitude of confidence because we know we're asking according to his will. And he's saying, hey, if you're asking it according to my will, you have it. We're told in Matthew 18, 19, that believers who agree in prayer, prayer concerning anything they ask, it will be done. Again, there's a confidence factor. It will be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. We're told in Mark 11:25 a condition of prayer if you stand praying and have anything against anyone, forgive them. So we know we're to have forgiveness as we pray and not have unforgiveness harbored in our heart. In Philippians 4, 6, and 7 again, the prayer that we offer with supplication and thanksgiving as a condition of prayer. In James 5, we're told it's the prayer of faith that restores the sick. And then Jesus tells us about faith again in Matthew 21, 22, that whatsoever things you ask in prayer, believing, you will receive. So then that begs the question of what are the conditions of this believing prayer that ensures receiving? Jesus 
Jesus gave us a real good lesson on this in the story of the fig tree and the mountain from Mark 11. And I'll just briefly play that scene where Jesus and the disciples are going on a journey from Bethany to Jerusalem and it's morning and Jesus becomes hungry. He sees a fig tree and expecting to get figs, he goes up to it, it is yielding no figs. And it's a bit of a confusing story because as you know, Jesus curses the fig tree and says, let no man eat of you hereafter, which seems a little, little harsh. Um, but then the, we're told as the story continues the next day, as they're passing by, Peter goes, Lord, the fig tree that you cursed is withered at the roots. And it was some alarm. And then Jesus suddenly segues from that into a lesson about a mountain. And he says, For verily I say unto you, that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Therefore, so he said all that, now he's got a therefore and he's going to talk about prayer. He's talked about speaking to a mountain, and now he's going to talk about prayer. I say to you, whatsoever things you desire, when you pray, believe that you receive them, and you shall have them. Of course, we could spend the rest of the night on this one verse, because it's packed with good stuff. I'm going to highlight just a few things. Notice that Jesus has already spoken to a fig tree. And then the next day, when they noticed that it worked, something happened to the fig tree. He says to them, talk to the mountain. And it's interesting that Jesus didn't say, talk to me about the mountain, or talk to your Father God about the mountain. He says, you talk to the mountain. Whosoever, rather, shall say to this mountain, be thou removed, cast into the sea, shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe, those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. It's also interesting how many times Jesus refers to that speaking, to say it. Therefore I say to you, when, whatsoever things you desire, when you pray, believe you receive them and you shall have them. That verse also has some interesting dimensions because we tend to have, I'll believe it when I see it. Jesus is saying, believe it when you pray. What sort of things you desire when you pray, then you believe, later you shall have. And sometimes there is a little time between the shore of when I pray, I believe I receive, and the shore of I shall have. And we're going to talk in a, just a minute further about that delay between the shore of I believe and the shore I shall have. In researching and digging into this verse, ran across this quote, the positive lesson to be learned from the cursing of the fig tree is the power of believing prayer. A mountain is symbolic of an obstacle, hindrance, or insurmountable problem. Faith is the key that releases the resources of heaven into our situation. Jesus uses hyperbole here to stress the importance and power of faith. 
So t let's talk a bit more about this relationship between prayer and faith. Faith believes before it sees. We all know Hebrews 11.1, 1, the powerful verse on, on faith, that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So we have to come to grips with the fact that sometimes faith does not involve our natural senses. We don't see it. It's the substance of things hoped for, the, subs the evidence of things not seen. So we have that element of not immediately seeing. Like the fig tree, it withered at the roots, but they didn't see it till the next day. There was a delay. God commends and responds to this kind of faith, though. And we can see several examples in the New Testament with Jesus. In Matthew 9, in the encounter with the woman with the issue of blood, She's saying, if I can but touch the hem of his garment, I will be made whole. And what does Jesus do? Power is released, virtue is released, she's healed, and he turns to her and says, woman, your faith has made you well. In Matthew 9, where he touched blind eyes and said to them, according to your faith, be it done unto you. The Syrophoenician woman, who came on behalf of her daughter, pleading with Jesus, and he says to her in her persistence, Woman, your faith is great. It shall be done to you as you wish. To the centurion in Luke 7, 9, Jesus says, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. Then in Matthew 9, 2, Mark 2, 5, Luke 5, 20, all that tells the story of the, the paralytic lowered to the roof. And we read where Jesus saw their faith and responded. So it's interesting to note in all these cases that Jesus is responding to faith more than the need of the moment. And he's also commending the people. And I thought about that a bit. But, you know, this was a great place for Jesus to show off and say, hey, look at me, what I did for you. But he's saying, look at you. You have faith in me. And that pleased him. So what do we learn about faith as we look at these things? We learn that faith has a voice. Back to talking to the mountain. Jesus said, say to the mountain. He spoke to the fig tree. He's saying, believe what you say. Out of the heart, man believes and speaks, we're told. Those two go together. Believing and speaking in 2 Corinthians 4.13. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what it is written, I believed and therefore I spoke, we also believe and therefore speak. But lest we be afraid of what we see in some camps and are not impressed with a name-it-claim-it kind of theology, it's not that. This is different. This is what Jesus is saying under the conditions that we've talked about within the context of God's will, God's word, God's agenda, to believe it and then see it versus name it and claim it. It's how faith works. Faith is more our response to what God has already provided in Christ. In other words, faith isn't work. Any more than our, our believing on Christ was a work, it's his work. And we have to be careful not to err on the side of thinking we have to work up faith or do I have enough faith? 
Um, we're going to talk a bit further in just a minute on where faith comes from. But it's, it's a response to what God has already provided in Christ. We are already blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, we're told in Ephesians 1-2, and that all the promises of God in Jesus are yes and amen. So again, that confidence that we can have because we're told we have them. And we have to go back to the fact, again, that we don't always sense it. It's not always something we can see, taste, hear, feel, or smell. Faith being the evidence, substance of things hoped for, and evidence of things not seen. It's based on what God's word says. Not so much that I can always feel it in my, in my heart, but I believe in my heart because I'm believing what God said in his word. So where does this kind of faith come from? We know from Romans 10, 17, that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We know from Hebrews 12, 2, that Jesus is the source of our faith. We're told, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of faith, takes a big load off of us. We have but to gaze on him and look to him to be the originator and finisher of the faith that he wants us to have. Paul talked about the life I now live. I live by the faith of the Son of God in Galatians 2.20. And our salvation operated the same way. For by grace we've been saved through faith, and that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Ephesians 2.8 and 9. Faith is about believing and receiving from a father who gives good gifts to his children. We're told in Matthew 7 and Luke 11. And it's not about convincing a reluctant God to give in and concede to grant us our wishes. God is happy to fulfill his word and his will and his agendas in our lives. And it's this very thing, this faith, is what pleases him. It's not just about us getting what we want. We find God being pleased as we operate in this kind of confidence in his willingness to give. It's a faith that without which we cannot even please him, we're told in 11, uh, Hebrews 11.6. So what gets in the way? Well, there are hindrances, some of which include not asking to begin with. Bible says you, you have not because you ask not in James 4, 2, and 3. We're told in another verse, ask and you shall receive, seek and you shall find. Knock and the door will be open. Also in the same context, text in James 4, we're told asking amiss can be a hindrance, that you may spend it on your pleasures. Pretentious prayers, where the Pharisees, in the example of how not to pray, Praying in their lengthy public displays. Unforgiveness, we saw earlier that forgiveness is a condition Jesus said you want to have when you stand praying in Mark eleven twenty five. And then unbelief. We are told in James 1, 6-9, if anyone is lacking in wisdom, to ask of God who gives to all men generously, but not to ask in unbelief or wavering like waves on the sea, or that man, let him think not he will receive anything from God. 
Notice that the, the verse doesn't say God won't give it. It says, let not that man think he'll receive it. So it's not that God doesn't want to give wisdom. It's that you have to really believe to receive what God already intends to give. And then a hindrance can very well just be a spiritual thing. We're told in Ephesians 6.12, we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but principalities and powers in the heavenly places. So we'll talk about that for a second, because sometimes that very reality of the spiritual warfare can create delay. So looking at a few delays. Delay does not mean denial. We're told in Hebrews 6.12 that with faith and patience, both, not just faith alone, but patience too, we inherit the promises of God. And looking at some examples of delays, Daniel. In uh, Daniel 10, we see he, he's prayed, and it took three weeks for the, the answer to materialize. Yet, when Gabriel came and showed up, he said, when you prayed, I came. He was dispatched on the first day. Three weeks it took to get there, and he goes on, if you read that passage, to talk about his Prince of Persia problem. So there can be a spiritual hindrance in the heavenly places. Jesus and the fig tree, the next day, saw the tree withered at the roots in Mark 11:20. Um, the ten lepers who Jesus healed weren't healed right that second. They were healed as they went in Luke 17:14. Elijah's prayer about rain, not raining, then raining. It's interesting, Elijah wasn't the only one, the only uh, character in the story. God's a character in that story too, in that he had already disclosed his will, that it was his will that it not rain and then it rained. And so we already know God's will was in place or had been revealed, yet God still engaged Elijah in the prayer to bring it about. And even that involved delay because it took seven trips for his servant to see the cloud as big as a man's hand show up. So the weight of faith, that time that can occur between the shore of I believe I received when I prayed and the shore of I shall have, is a discipline of faith. With faith and patience we inherit the promises of God. And it's this very thing this faith that believes before it sees is what pleases God. Again, reiterated in Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith being the substance of things hoped for, evidence of things not seen. Habakkuk 2.3 says, though the vision tarry, wait for it. And we know from Ephesians 3.20 that God wants to do exceeding abundantly beyond all we can ask or imagine. So our response, do not give in, give up, or give out. We're to pray without ceasing. We're supposed to pray till we receive. And there's no need to beg God because all of his promises in Jesus are yes and amen. The third vignette is turf wars. And uh, Larry asked that we spend some time on culture and prayer. Now the fact that you're here in this room, some of the discussion points, some of the destinations don't really pertain to you. 
So we're going to be talking about the church broadly and how it views kingdom come, will be done, which is very essential to how we in prayer encounter our culture. Kingdom come, will be done. Many believers sort of sit back and say, that's pretty cool. God brought the kingdom here in his son Jesus. It's installed, it's in motion. We worship a sovereign God, and you know what? He's doing a lot better with the kingdom than I am, than I could ever do. And so we sort of sit back and we relax, and many a church, if you've even raised uh, the definition of kingdom, they would not even be sure what you're talking about, much less kingdom expansion or kingdom extension. But you see, we don't have the privilege of just sitting back because this kingdom come will be done is an imperative. It's not a statement of completion or of contentment. Jesus, and I think part of the problem that we have is that we don't stop and think about what it was like when the kingdom was introduced into our world. Jesus introduced the kingdom into a pagan culture saturated with traditional religious dogma. Jesus declared war in Earth's culture. He planted a flag and he said, that is kingdom domination. He understood that the secular and the sacred could not exist together. A secular culture could not live with a kingdom culture. Now, when you hear the word war, that sort of scares you because as believers, we engage in a number of different programs to reach out to folks in our life and extend his love and his goodness and his kindness. And so you say, this whole war thing, this war in Earth's culture, I don't think I can pull that off. And we've got uh, Danielle here tonight who is very much a part of the neighboring program. And so she very easily could say, but war in the culture is not what neighboring is about. Neighboring is about reaching out to your friends, to your neighbors, and extending the message of Jesus Christ. Well, I've got some good news for you. It's a win-win situation. The earliest of believers had a relationship with God that was infectious in a pagan culture. Secular uh, historians suggest that most areas of the known world encountered the message of the kingdom and were transformed by it in 30 to 40 years. They extended the kingdom message into a culture that by every suggestion should have been fighting and resisting. And yet, what they did was so infectious, infectious that the kingdom was extended. In fact, historians tell us about Christians at the Maximus who were on the floor ready to be persecuted. And at uh, different moments, Roman soldiers, Roman soldiers who were very much the enemy of Christians would run down the center aisle, hurl the fence, and stand beside these Christians. And they did it because they knew there was something different. So we can have relationships, and we'll talk about that a little later. We should have relationships 
but in the process, we're still in the process of extending the kingdom. Now you say to me, well, Rich, um, the pagan culture in Jesus' time, I don't really think that's the kind of culture we have right now. And I would agree with you in great measure because Satan is very good at tailoring his, our cultures our, into the paganism that he desires. And so he takes what is working in our culture and he uses it to his advantage. So if you say to me, well, what does paganism in our culture look like? I would say it's a philosophical, intellectual, technological paganism. Turning to the future, at a recent conference, Dan Brown, author of The Da Vinci Code, and other best-selling books said, technological change and the development of artificial intelligence would transform the concept of the divine. We will start to find our spiritual experiences through our interconnections with each other, he said. Forecasting the emergence of some form of global consciousness that we perceive and that will become our reality. And then he wound it up with this clincher. Our need for that exterior God that sits up there and judges us will diminish and eventually disappear. And if we think that we're not in a war, we are. It's subtle, and Satan is very good at hiding it and concealing it, but it's going on. In juxtaposition, we read the verse in Matthew 11, 12, which says, uh, and there are several ways you can interpret this verse, but many, many Bible scholars look at it as a definition of the kingdom and kingdom extension. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the holy nation of heaven has suffered much and fighting men try to take it. Well, let's talk about kingdom for a little bit. The kingdom encompasses every area of life. Now, we easily spiritualize it, and we should. But in doing so, we also can limit it. An example, do you realize that verse after verse in the New Testament tightly links Jesus as kingdom with healing? And when the message of the kingdom was rejected, as it was in Bethsaida, which David talked about, Jesus could do no healing. Men with free will could thwart the advance of the kingdom. So you say, how do we bring about kingdom domination? Let's build the foundation. Without three essential planks, we will fail in extending the message of the kingdom into our culture, or we will fail in our personal lives if we don't have these three elements as part of our foundation. At a personal or cultural level, God has given us an abundance of grace beyond our comprehension to accomplish what God wills for us. 1 Corinthians 2, 12 and 13 tells us we need supernatural knowledge. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things which are freely given to us of God. One of the significant ways or reasons why the kingdom is not being extended as it should, and this is sort of a, a tough one to grapple with, but it says we have 
not receive the spirit of the world. And yet, as Larry was talking about on Sunday, we are permeated by the spirit of the world. Hollywood, Washington, um, workers in their workplace, everywhere we're being bombarded with this spirit of the world. And when we understand that we need to poof, uh, pro, uh, move past that and get to a point where we are influenced in everything by the spirit which is of, which is of God, we will not be able to extend the kingdom. Now, this is another destination point, and at the surface it may make us feel a bit uncomfortable, but I believe that programs and influenced by the church in our culture, as well-intentioned as they may be, may help minimize the hemorrhaging, but it is only in hearing the word and speaking the word into our culture that the kingdom will radically advance. In reality, we need both the word and programs. The first of the planks is what I would call presence, P-R-E-S-E-N-C-E, -E -E, being in the presence of God. This is what presence is. And this is where we hear what God has in mind for us. We hear God's plan on how he chooses to use us to implement the kingdom in our culture. And even something as good as Bible reading or prayer, if they're not done in a way that honors the Father, um, keep us from being in his presence. When they're separate, when Bible reading just becomes a goal-oriented exercise or prayer, and here's where I make a mistake, I may and would just knock out a number and say, I pray for 30 minutes. And so then I say, wow, that was okay, that was good. I'm going to go for 32 minutes the next day. That is a legal-driven definition of prayer. And when we pray like that, um, it automatically puts us not in his presence. When they're separate from being in his presence, they're simply religious rituals. 1 Corinthians 2.12 says, Now we have received, not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. Well, what happens in God's presence? It is there that the spirit gives life to the word. Without that, all we're left with is operating in the letter of the law which results in a lifeless faith. When God speaks to us, the residue of that encounter is faith. We frequently hear the expression, faith comes by hearing. Faith comes by hearing. But that presupposes that we're in the presence of God. You can't hear without being close to the voice. There's this wonderful old hymn that none of you have heard, but I'm going to go ahead and I'm not, I'm not going to sing it for you. That would end the, this our lecture series real rapidly, but it's uh, I Come to the Garden Alone. And in the chorus, it's remarkable because it so beautifully describes what presence is. I come to the garden alone, and then it goes in the chorus to, and he walks with me, 
and he talks with me. Now, I like that walking part because I'm going to be walking with him. He talks with me. Can you imagine what it was like in the garden when Jesus was there, uh, Adam and Eve, and they were just hanging out? They were just talking. He walks with me and he talks with me. And there's sometimes when I sort of am not in the presence of God and I feel sort of lost. But it doesn't matter to the Father because he says, he tells me I am his own. And the joy we share, it's joy for the Father and it's joy for us. Together it's joy as we tarry there. What is tarry? It's a strange old word. But it's sort of like when you're covered up on a cold morning with a blanket, you just want to tarry there. You don't want to get out from under the blanket. And um, we tarry there. And so this is just a wonderful way, I think, to describe the presence of what it's like, or what it's like to be in the presence of the Father. The next uh, plank is prayer. And again, I'm going to suggest that if we're not in his presence, and if prayer is not a part of our life and the church life, we are not going to experience kingdom extension. Prayer is a critical element of presence. It creates intimacy and communion. Not just any prayer, but the right prayer. I was thinking about Larry the first day that he introduced the Mark series, and he talked about the dance of the Trinity and our being a part of that. And as I thought about that, it dawned on me that prayer is the music of the dance. Prayer is not about a wish list. It's about presence. Jesus would spend all night in prayer. I've, as I was preparing this, I thought, you know, if I had the opportunity to go at any, at any point in history and spend 10 minutes, where would I go? And the more I thought about it, the more, you know, I would love to have been there when Jesus was talking with the Father more than anything else. I can't imagine what that discussion would have been like. For this was not a prayer of needs. Jesus' needs were met. His with the Father was a prayer of intimacy, fellowship, and communion. Well, you say, well, if it's all about just praising and all that, does that mean that we don't ask anything? We don't seek to have any of our needs answered? And I would say, no, no. That doesn't mean we don't address needs in prayer. But as we discussed earlier, those needs are packaged in praise. I can't prove this, but I believe one of the reasons why the Father so immediately meets our needs is so he can get them out of the way, so we can get to the real point of prayer, which is fellowship. I think there's another reason why we don't spend much time in the personal needs of our life, and it's because our needs have already been met. Christ accomplished everything the believer needs at the cross. The cross was not simply about Jesus providing us a heavenly life insurance policy. Because of the cross, we have it all. That's a scary expression. We have it all, that, that sort of, no, 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 I don't want it all. But we have all that God wills for our life. Nothing more and nothing less. The Bible tells me that because the Spirit dwells within me, everything I need for life and godliness 
I already have because of the cross. And here is where faith comes in. Faith receives what grace has provided, so I don't have to beg for my needs. Rather, I draw on the resources of that grace. An image came to mind as we were putting this together, and I thought of grace as this huge well, so vast that you could not see the other end of it, and so deep that it has never been discovered what the depth is, the well of grace. And I take my bucket of faith, and I, dro I drop it into the well of grace, and I receive all of the grace that God gives me. Now here's the challenge. You can use a small bucket, or you can use a large bucket. And um, that is so reassuring to me that God has provided this well of grace so that in faith I can have my needs provided. My God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. That's grace. When I understand the resources God has provided me, I declare those promises true. I think it was just yesterday I read that there's something like 7,000 promises in the, in the Bible. And so certainly we can each at least find one or two promises that we can, we can claim and we can declare. I declare those promises true, not just on my behalf, but into my culture. The third plank in this foundation of kingdom domination is power. Now, power sort of scares us as well, as well, because God is all power. So how does that relate to us? And it further frightens us when we think of some ministers who have used power to abuse their position. Fortunately, you don't, you don't hear about it that much anymore, and that, I think, is a real blessing for the church. But as we discussed earlier, we're not talking about that kind of power. We're talking about the power of words, which Dana so thoughtfully introduced. God has given us the authority through the power of his words to change our personal lives and transform our culture. 2 Corinthians 4.13 says, Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed, I received, and therefore so I speak. We also believe, and therefore so we speak. Our words have authority in our culture because we speak what the Spirit speaks to us. We hear those words in His presence. The Bible says the Spirit gives us knowledge of which we also speak. Dana mentioned the story of Elijah. And it's a great example of the power of God-infused words. James tells us that Elijah prayed. And then he prayed again, and he prayed again, that it might not rain. That speaks of constant communion with God. In the account in 1 Kings, it doesn't mention prayer, but it embodies every element of what prayer is. Elijah told the king it would not rain, quote, except for my word, end quote. Where did Elijah get the word? And how could he express it with such authority? He got it from God. Another quote, before whom I stand. How was Elijah able to shape the culture? He stood in the presence of God. We hear from heaven and we speak freely what's been given to us. We take to, uh, dominion and kingdom power over our culture with words, God's words. What does kingdom, dominion, and culture look like? And we're gonna wind down 
with these uh, series of points. The importance of prayer is not that God hears us, but that we hear God. The Bible speaks of granting us exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or think. In other words, we can't comprehend what God desires to do exceedingly in our lives, the life of the church or culture, unless God's Spirit reveals it to us. When we hear from God, then we can with authority declare his promises. Next, intimacy. Intimacy is the purpose of prayer, and out of intimacy comes fruitfulness. There are times sometimes when I think we act as if God doesn't really know our needs. And so we believe we need to alert him in prayer what our issues really are. That being said, there should be results, even when we don't make it a condition of being in God's presence. Seek ye first. If we don't expect results, change in our lives, and even more significantly, transformation within our culture, our prayers are incomplete, lacking in fruitfulness. Prayer is the key to cooperating with God for kingdom purposes. When I simply pray my heart to God frequently, it's my opinion. God, I think this, or God, I think that. That being said, we need to hear what God has to say. Um, and if we don't expect results, changes in our lives, as we said, our prayers are incomplete, lacking in uh, fruitfulness. When I simply pray my heart to God, rather than listening for his heart toward me, I will not be able to advance kingdom purposes. It is only when I hear what he has to say about my community and my culture that I create partnership in the process. Next, to pray is to exercise power. And if we're not seeking to pray in power, our prayers will be inadequate. Learning how to pray in power is much like going to the gym. A very overweight man goes and he looks in his mirror and he sees that his girth is wider than the mirror. And so he decides, I need to go to the gym. I need to exercise, and so he does. He goes, he gets a membership, he exercises that first day. The next morning he looks in the mirror and nothing really has changed because you don't build muscles overnight and you can't experience powerful prayer without exercise. Without powerful prayer, nothing powerful will happen. Now that can be risky, particularly if we feel at risk. Um, and so we learn how to pray by gaining confidence. Dallas Willard, who we frequently quote, said, prayer in its aspect of training for kingdom life is one of the safest places to learn how to operate in the power and in the gifts of God. Programs are good, but powerful prayer is far more effective. Next, corporate prayer is powerful. 1 John 5.14 says, this is the confidence that we have of him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that, whatever we ask, he hears us. And we know that we have the petitions that we desire of him. The certainty of answered prayer is further accented in John 15, 7 and Mark 11, 24. But there's a critical element in all three of these verses, and it's simply this. They speak to the plural. 
Now, we have been talking about the component of prayer that is personal throughout most of this discussion tonight. But when it comes to culture, when it comes to culture, there is a component that is plural, church-based, community-based, in which we speak in one voice that multiplies the power of prayer within our culture. Matthew 18, 19 says, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by the Father who is in heaven. We're down to about a page and a half, so hang in there. We're almost at the finish line. Culture is not our enemy. Frequently we hear that the media is wretched, Hollywood is despicable, Trump is a clown, Congress is a disaster, and business is corrupt. And I just can't stand any of them. I'm going to suggest that if that's the attitude that you have, that without love, you, not, you cannot pray. You cannot pray in the authority that God has given to us. Love is essential to the perpetuation of the kingdom in our culture. Satan loves timid prayer. The enemy works to deceive the church about the purpose and power of prayer. He loves it when we pray, now I lay me down to sleep prayers, or thank you for the food, amen. But when he gets us to pray faithless prayers, prayers without confidence, clarity, or certainty, or prayers that are not in alignment with the will of God, he wins. When we seek, ask, and believe for nothing, those are exactly the results that we will receive. Well, let's wind this down. John 15:7 says, um, and I'm going to read this from the Weiss translation, and the point here is to ask, believe, and receive. Now, this is sort of a jarring trans, uh, translation, and it was designed to, originally to see what grace is about. But we're going to change it in terms of how we communicate with culture and how we pray. It says, if you maintain a living communion with me, and my words are at home in you, I command you to ask at once something for yourself, whatever your heart desires, and it will become yours. That can be a jarring way to look at this verse. But let's go in for just a second and take a look at some of the key words. If you maintain, because there are conditions to answered prayer, and these are some of the conditions. If you maintain, that speaks of being in God's presence continuing to hear what he has to say. A living communion, a vibrant communion with the Father. And my words are at home in you. You know, sometimes we have folks that come to visit us for a little while at our home and we can tell they're not comfortable being there and we're not comfortable having them there. And then there are other times when we have folks come in and if they say to us, you know, could we stay a year with you? We would look at and we would say, let's go for two years or let's go for three years because we are so at home and they are so at home. And that's what the Father seeks within us, to be at home. So when he speaks to us, we say, well, of course, of course. Why would we ever say no? And then the translation says, I command you to ask. And in essence, I think what it's saying is, don't wait to ask. Don't wait to ask. Ask at the time that you have the need. At once, something for yourself, whatever your heart desires, and it will become yours, as Dana said. Sometimes it isn't instant. 
It isn't immediate, but it will become yours. Mark 11, 23 and 24 says, For verily I say to you, whatsoever you say to the mountain, as she said earlier, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in, that heart, in thy heart, but shall believe those things that he has said they will come to pass. Again, and I want to really reinforce when we look at this verse, that it's not about getting what we want. It's about seeing God work within us to extend his kingdom in our culture. Uh, this verse, unlike the other one, which was plural, this one is based on the singular pronouns. It's about you and your role in answered prayer. It's a prayer of authority and dominion, and it's based on the confidence of having heard from God. And then there's this beautiful, beautiful verse. Therefore I say unto you, what things so you, you so desire, what changes in culture you desire, when you pray believe that you will receive them. Mark 11 makes it clear that prayer and proclamation are tied together to bring about results, particularly at a cultural level. And this is where the role of the church is so significant. It says, my house shall be, call, shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. What's the subject? Prayer. What's the result? Change. And then finally, we move from transformational to transactional prayer. When I'm in the presence of God, my life is transformed. But there's also something transactional that occurs. And right now, at this point, I want to move away from the personal and what I need and what I seek in prayer and look at this big picture. Look at it, look at it in terms of culture. At this point, I'm not talking about personal prayers being answered, but something far greater. It's about what God desires in this earth. Kingdom come, will be done, no doubts, no questions, if it be his will. We are very close to the end in time. Um, and so perhaps it would be an opportunity to see if one of you, and I'm not going to point to anybody or look at anybody, but if there's anybody in the group that would like to uh, conclude our session in prayer. Okay, Dana, it's your job. <laughs> Go for it. Father, we just come before you with grateful hearts for your word, for what I pray that your Holy Spirit has birthed in our hearts as we've heard your word tonight. And I pray we walk out pro proclaimers of your kingdom in our individual lives, in our homes, communities, workplaces. Because it is the proclaiming of the kingdom of light that dispels the kingdom of darkness. And we thank you that you've made us co-laborers with yourself in this endeavor. And we thank you, Lord, that we, have, we are sheep who hear your voice and we incline our ear and pray you would continue to speak as we meditate on what you've shared with us about prayer and this wonderful dialogue we are privileged to enjoy before you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, Rich and Dana. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
thank you to each of you for your diligence in listening and into uh, considering. And if uh, the Lord can just use any one of these points to enhance your prayer life, then it was worth the whole evening. So may the Lord richly bless each of you.